I'm Ray Rhodes. Thank you for listening to Reclamation Worship. Was that too, like, DJ? (laughs) And now we're going to turn. And now we've got Taylor Swift. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. My name is Jason Allen, and I'm the host of Reclamation Worship, the podcast devoted to reclaiming a biblical view of worship for the church. Today's guest is Ray Rhodes. Ray is a pastor in Dawsonville, Georgia. He's also author of Susie, the life and legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. So I got to talk with Ray recently about this book that he has authored, and it's a great great book. My wife and I have been reading through it together and are greatly enjoying it. I cannot imagine uh, the amount of hours that Ray poured into the research for this book. And so I want to encourage you to purchase a copy of this book. And I know that you will enjoy it as much as my wife and I are enjoying it. So at the end of this uh, episode, I mentioned that we had some copies of this book to give away. Those books have now been given away. Uh, And I want to really thank uh, Moody Publishers for making that possible. Uh, Really appreciate them uh, donating those books to Reclamation Worship for the purpose of our first giveaway. So, uh, again, thank you, Moody Publishers. All right, let's get on over to the interview. So Ray and I live in this pretty small rural uh, town north of Atlanta, about an hour and a half north of Atlanta. And... um, I was on the off chance that there were any uh, retailers for field notes, you know, the little <laughs> notebooks. Um, yeah, I was looking for uh, a place in our area where I could buy some. And so I Googled it, and uh, lo and behold, uh, I found that there was a retailer in Dawsonville, Georgia, and I could not believe it. And so I called you and said, hey, man, I understand you sell field notes. Is that right? And think you might laugh and say, no, you're misunderstanding. Uh, but you said, yeah, I have them in my book stall at the church that I pastor. And uh, and so uh, you lived on the other side of town for me for about two years without me even knowing you. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're both uh, like-minded brothers. Uh, you're a faithful mm-hmm. pastor. And uh, I came over, you invited me over, and um, got to meet you. And it's it's been a, uh, although we don't get to get together too often, it's been a great uh, friendship, and, and I'm thankful for you. And uh, Well, I'm glad you're glad to that you recounted that story. Would you like to buy some fill notes? To- <laughs> okay. I will support, yes. I will support the ministry and buy some more fill notes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, great uh, great uh, bookstall here at uh, your church. And so mm-hmm. you've got a great uh, great selection of things. So, Well, thank uh, you, you're, Jason. You're a very well-read pastor, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you well, try to help your I've got a lot of books. It doesn't mean I'm well-read. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, Ray, uh, you have written a very important book, and I wanted to have you on uh, Reclamation Worship to talk about that. And uh, so, if you could maybe just uh, share with us um, the name of the book and and how it came to be. Yeah, the book is Susie: The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Wife of Charles Spurgeon. And uh, I was uh, 2000. 12, I believe, I returned to seminary in my old age to work on my D-men, and while I was there, I had to choose a thesis topic, and I started looking into Spurgeon. I've been interested in Spurgeon, like most pastors, for a long time, or many pastors, and I was wondering about angles uh, into Spurgeon's life that have not been addressed, and uh, I th- 
started thinking about his marriage. And I went to the archives in the library and went on the internet and could find really almost nothing about his marriage. And I said, wow, that's great. I, maybe I can do something there. And my uh, degree focus was biblical spirituality. And so I started looking to the spirituality of Charles and Susanna's marriage, and that led to narrowing it down to Bible intake and prayer. And uh, the more I studied about their marriage, the more I learned about Susie, which I knew very little about uh, until then. And since then, I've spent quite a bit of time with her and, uh, and went on to write the book recently. Yeah. Nice. Great. Now, you mentioned this was uh, in preparation for your senior thesis on your D-Men. Tell us what a D-Men is. Yeah, a D-Men is a professional doctorate. It is designed for people who uh, are probably going to be more uh, on, in the field, uh, serving in pastoral ministry of some sort, uh, or some other sort of practical outworking in the ministry rather than in the academic community. That also is practical, by the way. But yeah. uh uh, typically, a Ph.D. is going to be a guy that's in the academic community, hopefully uh, teaching or writing for academic journals and uh, various, you know, various pursuits in that direction. Yeah. yeah. And they, there's some overlap, of course. Yeah. Well, so Dr. Ray Rhodes and. Uh, well, the D-men's are lowly. You know, we don't get to, <laughs> we don't get to be called doctor. Uh, well, well, but my kids, I do require my kids. There so. you go. Exactly. <laughs> that's great. That's great. But by the way, uh, just a quick plug, D-men at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the I'm sorry, the, the, <laughs> the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is a very rigorous D-man. And so uh, somehow I survived it, which is a surprise to everyone there. But it is a very good D-man program, and I highly recommend that. So uh, maybe Southern will send you something Hopefully for this so. broadcast. <laughs> so. Please, if you're listening, Dr. Moeller. So, uh, who was your advisor? Uh, Dr. Donald Whitney. Yeah, Don Whitney. Yeah, I've had Dr. Whitney uh, come to the church where I'm one of the pastors mm-hmm. at, and, and uh, he did a, uh, a conference for us on spirituality, mm-hmm. um, praying through the Psalms, uh, praying scripture, and a uh, great man of God. Great yeah, man most him. probably the most recognized guy on that subject these days on spiritual disciplines and biblical spirituality from a, from a very biblical perspective. Yeah. yeah. It's good. Well, let's talk about your book. And so um, it seems like every time I would see you, um, you would talk about, I would say, Ray, are you done with the book yet? And so uh, for a couple of years, you labored hard in this. And it, it we get down to nearing the end, and I would see you, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. So <laughs> you have devoted a lot of the last number of years uh, mm-hmm. to the writing of this book. And so um, it's an important story. I'm so thankful it's done. I want to get help you get the word out. Uh, so if you, if you could talk with us a little bit about who Susanna Susie Spurgeon was and um, maybe talk about some of the accomplishments in in her life. Okay. Yeah. Well, Susie Spurgeon was a city girl uh, from the time of her birth uh, throughout her life. I mean, she never was not a city girl. She was born in 1832 in London and uh, spent her childhood and early uh, uh, teenage years there. Uh, And during her teenage years, probably her later teenage years, mid to later teenage years, she also spent some time in Paris where she went for, uh, to further her education, to enhance her cultural awareness, uh, to learn to speak French. And so she was a uh, – she'd go back and forth, uh, some from Paris to London. We don't know how many trips, but it seems like she made quite a few. In fact, when she married Charles Spurgeon, that's where they honeymooned, and she was his tour guide, and she, he didn't speak French. So it was quite a great experience for him. So she was city, refined, cultured, educated, uh, prim and proper, I would say, uh, young lady. Her parents, uh, her mother died at age 57. Uh, 
had some sort of tumor, um, and her aunt also died young. We we you know, we, we consider fifties uh, young, right? Yeah. And uh, and as Susie was sick, as we'll probably talk about a little bit later, she uh, about ten years or twelve years into her marriage, she was very afflicted as well. She didn't die young. I mean, she lived to be seventy one, which in Victorian age was a right. Uh, age to live, you know, but uh, she could have had some sort of hereditary issue. So her mother died relatively young after Susie was married, though, and her dad was mostly in sales, okay. and that ebbed and flowed with the uh, economy. Okay. There's times when, you know, of course, the Industrial Revolution, the results of that, the economy's booming, and he's being he's successful, but there are also times when his business was very low. Yeah. And he suffered financially. Uh, but she was surrounded by people who, of wealth who, okay. I think, my theory is, assisted her uh, when the, ne- the need was there to make sure she was able to, for example, make these trips to Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't definitively say that, but somehow she had resources to get to Paris and to have this sort of extra education as well. So a refined city, cultured, educated, prim and proper uh, young lady. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, how old was she when she and uh, Spurgeon met Charles? Yeah, so she was born in 1832 uh, in uh, January of 1832, and they met uh, – well, she saw him for the first time. Whether they met or not is still not known. Okay. On December the 18th, 1853. So she was almost 22 years old. Is that the math? Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> I'm not the one to correct you on that. So. <laughs> yeah, she was born in 1832. They, she saw him in 1853 towards the end. Almost. So that would be almost almost 22 years old okay. when she first saw him. Okay. Yeah. Good deal. Now, you were able to sit down with her great-great-granddaughter. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Uh, her great-great-granddaughter uh, is actually from Dublin, Ireland, mm-hmm. not Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know. Uh, and she's married to Tim, Tim Cochran, and they have several children, beautiful children. Uh, young mother, uh, and now lives in England and really lives pretty close, not too far from where Spurgeon is buried. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I was uh, working on my doctoral thesis on Spurgeon, our church very generously sent me to London and surrounding places. And uh, in the process, I had met a couple from London, and they uh, told me that she lived down the road from them. Wow. Sort of matter of fact, you know. Uh, by the way, did we tell you that Susie Spurgeon's great great granddaughter? I said, no, you didn't tell me that. I'm very excited to hear. Yeah. And I said, could you possibly uh, could we could we meet her, my wife and I? And they worked it out. Okay. So she came over to their home, and we met for the first time. And then I was back in London, and uh, back in the fall of uh, this year. And got to meet with her and her family again. Wow. And uh, it's quite just a godly lady to see the legacy of faith that continues, at least with her. Yeah. Uh, in the Spurgeon home is beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Very, very wise and sweet and godly uh, lady. Great. Um, so I do want to get into talking about. Um, all of her accomplishments, not all of them. Mm. We don't have time, but uh, <laughs> but some of them, and um, and especially um, you and I chatted before we started recording. That um, seems like Charles is one of the, if not the most well known mm-hmm. pastors um, in recent memory, and uh, 
And so would Charles be the name, the household name that he is today were it not for his wife, Susie? And, uh, and so we speculated a little bit on that. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, and you know, we certainly can't definitively say the answer. Well, we can say in one sense that none of us would be exactly as we are mm-hmm. without the people that we've interacted with, especially mm-hmm. those closest to us, and if we're married, our spouse. Right. So whether that was a po- whether that's a positive or negative experience, it certainly has affected who we are yeah. in some way. But in the case of Charles Spurgeon, I would say it is it has affected dramatically mm-hmm. the Spurgeon that we have. Now Spurgeon was a large figure. Even though he was a village pastor at a small church that grew dramatically while he was there before he came to London, he was still a brilliant uh, man. He he was well-read from childhood, Mm -hmm. uh, really pretty early in his life. He's reading the Puritans. Mm -hmm. He's uh, reading the Pilgrim's Progress that he would read a hundred times before he died. And it's hard to even find a Spurgeon sermon where... There's not references or illustrations from the Pilgrim's Progress. Wow. Same is true with the gospel, by the way. Yes. I mean, almost every paragraph you're getting the gospel with, mm. with Spurgeon. So he's a large figure. He's well-read. He's probably – he's going places, it would seem, because he gets to London uh, without knowing Susie, of course. So he's uh, he's invited to guest preach in London on that December day in 1853 uh, because of his – his his uh, fame, if you will, in the little village. It went from about 40 people in the church to 400 in the course of a couple of years. And that's all without Twitter. That's without Twitter or okay. anything. And this is a, you know, this is a pretty small village yeah. as well. Uh, and so Spurgeon is only 17 when he becomes the pastor, and he's 19 when he actually becomes the pastor in London. Wow. So a teenager wow. pastor. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, there's a, a Broadman and Holman have published or publishing the lost sermons of C.H. Spurgeon that really are looking at those years before London. Mm. And so there's they're scheduled to be about 12 volumes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> of this analyst, uh, analysis of Spurgeon's sermon. So all that to say, he was a large figure. He was he was brilliant. He was a country boy in many ways. Mm and unrefined in ways that Susie would actually help sort of be like a sander. She'd sort of sand off some rough edges, I think, of him. That sounds familiar. My (laughs) my wife has done that for me as well. (laughs) Praise the Lord. It's for your wife. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be here. (laughs) Hanging out with you, brother. Uh, So, yeah, all of that. And he comes to London and... She's unimpressed in their first meeting, but of course that changes. And within a year, less than a year after that meeting, they're engaged. Wow! So a very quick change of mind because she thinks, "Why in the world is this church has mm. has, I, has my church invited Charles Spurgeon to preach? <laughs> this guy whose whose handkerchief is weird, who's he doesn't know how to dress, his hair's a mess, uh, he can't even you know, can't speak right. I mean, she, she everything about him was unimpressive to her. Did he have the gnarly beard at that point? Uh, is it? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I have to go back and look at my <laughs> re-examine my photographs on, okay. on that. Uh, he just was not a hand, and he never really changed. He never became a handsome guy. <laughs> so she was not ultimately attracted to him because he was this uh, handsome figure. Yeah. But she realized that her reaction to him initially was because of her own spiritual coldness. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had been converted, she says, about a year earlier mm-hmm. and uh, had fallen almost immediately into a backslidden condition. She wow. had told no one of her conversion, mm-hmm. uh, of her profession of faith. And so that's really how she came became acquainted with Charles uh, was he 
started preaching more regularly at the New Park Street Chapel in London. Mm. And uh, and eventually in August, I'm mean, sorry, in uh, April of 1854, he became the pastor. And just prior to that, he's essentially the pastor uh, and still maintaining the water beach somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has told her cousin, William Olney, of her spiritual decline, and mm-hmm. he tells Charles, and Charles sends her a copy of the Pilgrim's Progress, which is just true to form with him. Mm-hmm. And and she probably has seen that, probably had read it before uh, herself, but it meant something different to her then. As you can imagine, Jason, you've probably had guys that maybe you've heard of books before, but then once somebody you really respect, they say, Jason, you ought to read this. Right. And if you're like me, I'm like looking for it. I'm going to read it right away. Yeah. Some of my hero, one of my heroes says, you need to read this book. Yeah, take notice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and so... This is her pastor now, and she's mm. grown in her regard for him. Uh, and so she takes this book. She starts seeking his counsel, and so he gives her some counsel. But she has no idea, and there's no indication there's any romantic interest at all until June of that year, uh, June, just a couple of months later, after uh, April of 1854, June of 1854, at a great event in London, the grand reopening of the Crystal Palace. He opens a book by Martin Tupper, points to a section on marriage. It says you should be praying for your future spouse. And Spurgeon says, whispers in her ear, do you pray for the one who's to be your mm-hmm. your husband? Mm-hmm. And she knows then what he's saying, uh, which is, you know, I don't know that we would have figured that out, but somehow she knew exactly what he was saying when he asked her that question. Wow. And that led to them being engaged two months later, and they're married in 1856. And she travels with him a lot the first 12 years of their marriage. In fact, she's a, she's hiking the Alps. Uh, you know, Spurgeon is in his carriage talking theology with his publisher, and she's out in front, and she's examining the sights. And sometimes she's out of sight of the carriage and wow. the whole the pack mule and the whole nine yards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I, I was really surprised by that, seeing this Victorian prim and proper woman out hiking the uh, mountain passes of the Alps. Adventurous. And it's amazing. Uh, so she's doing that, and um, she then she gets sick in 1868, or it becomes very pronounced by then that she has surgery, and then she's essentially an invalid for the rest of her life. Mm. So I'm saying all of this to try to get to your question. I'm sorry, I, I kind of took some. Yeah, some thanks back, for the background. The background there, but so she's essentially a homebound. Spurgeon's own health begins getting worse and worse. Mm. And uh, in 1875, she, the Mrs. Spurgeon's book fund begins, that where she ultimately she gives away 200,000 books, many of them, most the majority of them, by Spurgeon. That's what pastors wanted. Mm-hmm. And we can talk more about that later if you want to, how that all worked. Uh, and then Spurgeon dies at 57, and she's already written one book, edited another one before he dies. And then her second book covers part of the time while he's still alive, and then uh, sometime after, and then she writes. Those are two books giving an accounting of the uh, the book fund. Okay, that also is very biographical in nature as well. Hmm. And then she writes three devotional books. She becomes the uh, major contributor to and co-editor of the what was then the four volume massive autobiography of Charles Spurgeon. Hmm. And she lives out her days uh, seeing that his sermons are distributed and translated and promoting his legacy. So uh, we can go back and talk about any of those pieces on their own. But just all that to say that she was his biggest supporter. Mm. 
She encouraged him. She helped him to keep his sanity. There's times when his depression, and Spurgeon's struggle with depression, a kidney disease, gout, mm. uh, which all of these things facilitated his weight issues also. Yeah. So he was a, he he could be very very ill. And he could be very very dark at times. Even though he's a joyful, humorous, great personality, mm. he had some very dark experiences that took him beneath the uh, foundations mm-hmm. of the castle of Despond or what, what, you know, whatever the picture is in Pilgrim's Progress. He mm-hmm. would be so dark. Mm-hmm. And one of those experiences happened in early in their marriage. Uh, the first year of their marriage, they have twins, the first year of their marriage, hmm. and Spurgeon's fame is just growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, he's preaching at this uh, music hall, 10,000 people inside, 10,000 people outside. Wow. Someone comes in and says, fire, fire, maybe several someones. Uh, several people are trampled to death. Mm-hmm. Others are hospitalized. Spurgeon falls into despair. He's, he's whisked away to a deacon's home. They've got these two babies at home, and Susie follows him. And during that time, he essentially uh, uh, is wondering if he's going to be able to continue on. And it was through her, her ministry to him in part that he sees the light. Mm. And two weeks later, he's back in his pulpit preaching. And four weeks later, he's back at the very venue where this uh, horrific event happened, mm-hmm. and he continues his ministry, but he's never the same. Mm-hmm. And she is a stabilizing force in his life and ministry. So I'll pause there. I've talked too much. No, but. no. That's, that's very <laughs> yeah. helpful. Yeah, and so at a time, it seems like in in the history of where they were mm-hmm. in that certain time and place, uh, women were marginalized, I think, mm-hmm. to say the least. Mm-hmm. And yet... Um, she was not quieted. She she was a force to be reckoned with, and uh, and accomplished a, a great deal for the Lord, mm-hmm. and had a, a very vibrant ministry of her own. It sounds like, um, and so I think I mentioned or, or read Sue uh, somewhere that um, she was involved in a church planning effort. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that happened after Spurgeon's death, so that's all pretty stunning as well. Uh, again, so if you think of Susie, she's homebound, she's afflicted. She seldom travels uh, even a mile without significant pain. Mm. But by the near the time of Spurgeon's death, really a miracle occurs. Uh, he's all you know. He's traveling to southern France um, all, every year, sometimes more than once a year. They all, they always call it a thousand miles. Okay. Whether that's exact or that's sort of a picture of the, the distance, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. But uh, because of his health, mm. from 1872 till his death in 1892, he's going there a lot, mm-hmm. um, and he's doing ministry there as well. But he, a lot of times he's just recovering. He always wanted her to go, she couldn't mm. because of her own health. Mm. But on his very last trip, which neither of them knew would be his last trip, he expected to go get enough strength to come back and continue preaching again. Mm. But uh, Miraculously, she's able to go, yeah. and it's like his dream come true. He's dream. He's dreamt of this day uh, ever since he's been going because he he loved this place. He wanted her to see what he was seeing mm-hmm. and experience what he was experiencing. Right, and so and she's able to make this journey. She's there. Spurgeon is like a schoolboy. You know, even though he had been sick, he's he's recovering somewhat automat- right away. Mm. He's showing her, uh, Susie, wasn't it worth the trip just to see this? And mm. she says, you know, the greatest joy for her was seeing how happy he was with her, wow. having her there. Yeah. So they have like basically three months of what's described as perfect happiness, like a second honeymoon. Mm. And then um, 
he gets sick in January of 1892. Uh, again, he goes down and he's dead the last day, the last hour of the first month of 1892. Mm. Uh, and Susie's by his side and she prays and thanks the Lord for such a good man. And, uh, his body shipped back to London, but she stays behind. Mm. Uh, I don't know if it's because she's physically just shaken up again and she can't make the journey. It would have been chaos for her back there. I mean, if you know, uh, if you've read anything about the scene, it's sort of a modern example would be when Princess Di mm-hmm. died, the, the folks lined the street, mm-hmm. all the activity. When Spurgeon died, uh, uh, they had several services okay. for him, memorial-type services. But on the day when his body was transported to the grave, 100,000 people lined the streets. Wow. Uh, flags flew at half-mast. Dignitaries sent either their greetings or representatives from around the world. Mm. I mean, this is like a world leader has yeah. died, yeah. that sort of event. Uh, Susie recovers. So she comes back home, and she says, what do I do now? And she's in this big home. Of course, they have many household employees that are assisting, have been assisting her for years. Mm. Spurgeon's home was not like, you know, going home, shutting the garage door, turning on the television, <laughs> let's kick back. Right. I mean, it's a, it's an active place mm. because of who he is with the church and 60 institutions and his writing and wow. all the things he's involved in. Uh, so she goes back on, what do I do? Uh, so she continues the book fund to poor pastors, which is really her burden. Mm. But a few years into this, uh, she takes a journey down to a place called Bexhill on Sea uh, to recover. Her home is being worked on. Mm-hmm. And while she's there, she says, is there, you know, not is there, she asks, where is the Baptist chapel? Because she was there on the Lord's Day. She's going to go to church. Mm-hmm. And the gentleman said to her, ma'am, there's not one. Wow. And she was stunned by that. Uh, there was other denominations or there are other groups there. Why was, why was there not a Baptist group here? Mm-hmm. That bothered her. Mm-hmm. She attended a Wesleyan church that morning. And uh, when she went back to London, she's praying about this. And then she's friends with this pastor and his wife, and they come to stay with her for a while. They've left their former church. They're staying with her. And she believes during her time of prayer that God has chosen this guy to be the the pl- church planting pastor wow. of this church in Bexhill okay. that doesn't exist. And essentially, that's the way she presents it to him. I think, you know, what do you think about this to go to a place where there's not a pastor to a church that doesn't exist and folks that don't know you and plant a church kind of thing? Right. And he bites. Wow. And he's an older guy himself. And so Mrs. Tr- Spurgeon plants this church, chooses the pastor, and supports the effort. And these are her guidelines, essentially. You know, the gospel's got to be preached, the old gospel, <laughs> not, not any modern version of that. <laughs> okay. The Puritan gospel. Uh, it's a place of Bible preaching. Uh, we're not going to go into debt. Uh, we're not going to uh, incur any debt on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And it's not going to be named after Charles, because there was already people. Let's name it after you know, the oh, Charles wow. Spurgeon Baptist Church or whatever. Yeah, and uh, but it will be a memorial to Charles, with, but but not in his name. Mm. So they, and there would be no sort of fundraising efforts like back in those days. Bazaars were huge and whatnot. Okay. But long story short, uh, that church was planted uh, and opened in various phases. Uh, this building was built, and another building was built. And uh, it still exists. Wow. And there's still a, a Baptist congregation there today. And they've got uh, the original foundation stones. It's got her, one with her name and her son's name. And wow. memorials to her that were placed in 1904, a year after her death. All of those are still in the building. Uh, planted by an elderly, sick, 
widow. Mm. And as I've said to others, it's really, if you look at the, you know, the guide for how to choose a church planter, Mm -hmm. she not only doesn't meet any of those guidelines, (laughs) she's not, she would not, she'd be laughed at probably. You know, thank you. Imagine this elderly widowed woman sickly comes into a church planting office. Say, I'm going to plant a church. Right. right. Oh, ma'am, you're not this age. You don't have these skills. Yeah. Right. She's not relevant. (laughs) She's not relevant at all. Not organic. Like, she has a, has nothing that church planning <laughs> organizations are looking for. Yeah. yeah, but she supports it with all of her heart, mm. and uh, and also helps to keep the Metropolitan Tabernacle going mm-hmm. uh, as it burns to the ground. Her son is the pastor, and she's very feeble, but she goes and sits there for a little while one afternoon in the basement of this burned out building, and uh, people come by, shake her hand, and give her money. Wow! And just with, I mean, she raises a tremendous amount of money and just a couple of hours mm. just because of who she was and the appreciation that Charles Spurgeon still had yeah. to help rebuild the tabernacle when mm. it burned. Yeah. Mm. You know, I, I'm just struck, and I, I think we hinted at this a few minutes ago, but um, I'm just struck by the fact that uh, Charles Spurgeon is such a household name in mm. evangelical Christianity. Uh, and yet we we don't think about this this power uh, of in his wife behind him and and the support that she gave him and um, and uh, the help that she was and not only uh, to support his ministry but just all, all the ways that the Lord used her uh, in various ministries um, it, it does help me to give thanks for my wife and uh, and uh, the help that she is in in my ministry mm-hmm. and uh, and I know the same for you and and your thanks for Lori. And mm-hmm. uh, so, um, yeah, too often, I don't know that we think enough about the wives behind mm-hmm. our ministries. And you, you have shined a, an amazing spotlight on Susie, and, uh, and I'm thankful for that. Um, so in talking about, you've, you've mentioned her illnesses and, and um, the tragedies that she lived through. Any thoughts on how to suffer well as a, as a follower of Christ. And, um, I mean, she seems like a shining example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, any, anything in, in your, uh, research and study of her life that, uh, led you to give praise to God for how she suffered as a follower of Christ? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, and you think of her affliction, it touched her at the essence of her womanhood. You know, we don't know the specifics of it, but, uh, the, one of the most well-known gynecologists of the day did her surgery. Uh, and so that had to affect her as well. They never had any more children, so we we imagine that either her illness or the surgery made it so. Because I think they would have. Mm-hmm. That was a culture that loved children mm-hmm. and, and romanticized children, even and romanticized the woman. Yeah, they romanticized the woman. But the, as you mentioned, the woman had few rights in that culture. Um, but Susie didn't let any of that hinder her. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. She didn't need political affirmation. She didn't need a society to tell her that you know she couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, she served God faithfully, and much of that was when she was ill and sick. Mm. So I think that's one of the lessons is that she did everything that she could do uh, while she could do it and mm. when she could do it and how she could do it. Mm-hmm. So she didn't just accept that, you know what, I'm sick, and and we all would have said it's justifiable for her not to do any of these things. Sure, But she didn't accept that she couldn't do anything. Mm. And so she did what she could do. Yeah. And uh, and it turns out that even as a very sick invalid who some days could not raise her hands or her head off of her bed, the Mm. pain was so severe. 
it turns out that she did a lot. Mm. Uh, and so she was faithful with what she God had given her mm-hmm. to do what she could do. She was uh, faithful to to look to Christ and not complain. Yeah, and, it, and she's very honest. I think the Spurgeons are maybe surprisingly so. I, I'm not an expert on all of Victorian culture, but they were very open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in our culture, even most pastors and pastors' wives are reserved. They're not going to tell their congregation like Spurgeon did. I hope you never suffer the darkness of depression that I feel. Mm-hmm. And he described that to them. Wow. I don't know that I'd be comfortable saying it quite that clearly to our congregation. Sure. Uh, yeah. And so she, in her writings, she's just interacting with her readers. She talks about her dark experiences, her loneliness without Charles. And yet she does it in a way that's not like shaking her fist at God. It's not complaining. Mm. It's that God will supply my needs. Wow. She trusted God to supply her needs. Mm-hmm. She missed her husband. And and yet she longed for heaven. So I think that she did what she could while she could do it. She didn't blame or shake her fist at God. She trusted God to supply all of her needs. And she longed for heaven. She longed to see Jesus that she loved and served. Mm-hmm. And she longed to see Charles. Now, they didn't have any twisted theology that says they would be married in heaven. Right. But yet she believed that she would see him, that she would know him, mm. and that she would worship God around his throne Amen. Uh, with, with, her, with Charles, yeah. uh, her brother in Christ in heaven eternally. Yeah. So she longed for that. So she was not afraid to die. Mm. Uh, in fact, she looked forward to being, uh, certainly none of us look forward to the experience of death and the pain and often that leads up to death. Yeah. But she looked forward to what was beyond death. Mm. Uh, she looked to Christ. And so she died essentially with a hymn on her lips and jo- quoting Job uh, during the period of, you know, last period of her life, uh, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And that's the way she lived. Wow. Yeah. I certainly didn't plan to talk about this with you, but um, just yesterday uh, I learned that my daughter had, uh, had um, in her, uh, one of her school assignments, listed the fact that, that she's afraid of dying, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, of being separated from her family, mm-hmm. um, myself, my wife, and, and her siblings um, on the new earth. Uh, and so, um, yeah, what is your counsel? And again, we're, we're getting a little, way, a little ways away from Susie here, but as a pastor, mm-hmm. um, for those who uh, may be listening to this and are concerned about uh, the state of dying and, mm-hmm. and perhaps being separated from the ones they love. Could you speak as a pastor to, mm-hmm. to that very thing? Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things. One is we certainly want to do all that we can to help our families know Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in know, and so that they will uh, be with Him yeah. eternally. I mean, in part. I mean, there's other reasons, but so they'll be with Him eternally. Mm-hmm. I think it's very natural. We love our, our earthly family, and we want to be with them eternally. Yeah. Um, I think that can become a problem when we imagine that heaven is not heaven without them, mm-hmm. or that um, there's somehow we're going to be reunited in a little house on the prairie sort of romantic way, and right. uh, things are going to go on. I heard a pastor say one time that uh, he was asked a similar question to what you just asked me, will I, will I love my spouse in heaven or will I know my spouse in heaven? He said, oh, yes, you will know them 
uh, not as your spouse, but you will know them more deeply, more intimately, and mm-hmm. more devotedly than you've ever known them before. And you will love them mm-hmm. like you've never loved them before, and they will not complain. Mm-hmm. Your spouse is not going to say, I really wish he was my husband, and he was like he was on earth. <laughs> right. <laughs> She's going to say, yes! <laughs> Finally! <laughs> so, you know, heaven is a place of love, as Jonathan Edwards said, a world of love, something like that. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, the love is perfected, and there's no sin, no sorrow, no suffering. It is a, it is a perfection. Yeah. So all the details of heaven we may not understand. Right. But there does seem to be there's rec- this recognition. You know, we're going to say, I believe we'll get to heaven, and based on what I understand from Scripture to say, and we'll instantaneously say, Hey, look at there's Abraham, and there's mm-hmm. Isaac, and there's Jacob, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and yeah. there's Paul. But you know, like Fanny Crosby wrote in her hymn, When I get to heaven, all that'll be wonderful. But it's my Savior, first of all. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can train our children up. It's all about Jesus, yeah. and yeah, we, we love Jesus, you know, if we're Christian family. And, right. And so you'll, you'll know us. You'll see us. We'll be together. Yeah. We'll love Christ together. But it's really about Him and just keep directing that attention That's upward. Good. Yeah. That's good. And, and one way that I counseled her, too, was that uh, even though we can't possibly wrap our minds around mm-hmm. it, what it's going to be like— um, that if God is good and He is, mm-hmm. like we all of Scripture affirms that. Then um, it's going to be so much more grand than we can even mm-hmm. wrap our minds around. Mm-hmm. And and whatever we think is going to be lacking, will there will be no lack, right? And and um, His presence, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's presence mm-hmm. uh, alone will mm-hmm. be more than enough to to mm-hmm. overcompensate for anything that we think is going to be missing. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. from our limited understanding here. And so, um, so for my youngest daughter uh, to, to know that she's in good standing with Susie Spurgeon, uh, they share the same concerns. Oh, yeah, uh, of course. And, and in fact, when she died, they asked her, you know, what, uh, what her associate said to her. Uh, in essence, you know, what person, not, not thinking of the Lord Jesus, of course, but who, who do you most want to see? Mm-hmm. And she said, my husband. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. so she believed that she would see Charles wow. uh, in in heaven. Now, both Charles and Susie, we look at them as larger than life figures, and they were. Uh, my, I can't become Charles Spurgeon. God didn't make me to be Charles. I mean, I can be better than I am. Yeah. I can I can grow and develop and mature and all those things. And but Charles Spurgeon is Charles Spurgeon. He's one of those unique characters. I don't know if they come along every hundred years mm-hmm. or how, you know, they, but you look through history and there's these giants right. uh, that we can't be, we can learn from. But then there are the figures who are also giants that we will never know about. They were giants in God's eyes, right. but we don't know about them and we'll celebrate with them in heaven. But uh, neither Charles nor Susie would want us to imagine uh, that our attention should be riveted on them at all. Mm-hmm. But that they might be sort of a, an instrument through which we can see the beauty of wow. Christ. Yeah. And that's what I, what I take away from both of their writings is Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's all about Christ. It's all about the gospel mm-hmm. and and loving God's people. And they did that. They wow. were deeply burdened for, especially her, for these pastors yeah. that were suffering. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
Yeah, Susie would probably not be excited that I've written a book with her picture <laughs> covering the front page. I know as an author, I was supposed to put my picture yeah, there. Right, right exactly. <laughs> you know, that's the big thing, right? You put the author's <laughs> picture on the front, not on the back cover or the inside of the back cover. You put it on the front, right. big picture, <laughs> big smile, big hair. But uh, <laughs> but Susie, uh, she probably would get on to me about, why would you put my picture on the front? It's all about Jesus, not right. Susie. So, wow. And that's what I hope comes across in the book that mm. is about Christ. And she just helps us to see something of how beautiful Jesus is. Amen. Amen. Ray, it has been a privilege. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this book that you've written. And uh, I want to encourage each and every one of you out there to buy uh, five or ten copies of this. And uh, Christmas is coming. SusieSpurgeon.com. There you go. Okay. It's easy. SusieSpurgeon.com. They'll take you to all sorts of retailers and wholesalers. And And that's S-U-S-I-E. That's right. Not Z. Okay. (laughs) S-U-S-I-E. Yep. All right, great. Susie Spurgeon, I'll link to that in the show notes. Yep. So anything else, Ray, in, in closing? Yeah, well, thank you. Your friendship and your family's beautiful and an example to us. I'd like to say thank you to Moody Publishers. Uh, the experience has been well beyond anything I could have imagined. They have been very kind, very ministry-minded, and and they've just done an excellent job. They, they put together a beautiful book. Mm. It's not just the writing which is subpar, my part. But, <laughs> but they put together something that can be passed down. It's a beautiful book. The cover is beautiful. The it pictures is. inside, the design, it's just a beautiful hardback book. Yeah. Great. And they've been gracious to uh, to give a few copies for Reclamation Worship's first giveaway. So, oh, uh, so yeah, we're going to be uh, putting that up uh, a little bit later. And uh, so I'm grateful to Moody as well and uh, Moody Publishers and uh, very thankful for uh, their cooperation in all this. Mm -hmm. So, Ray, God bless you. You too, Jason. Thank you, brother. You bet. Again, that was Ray Rhodes. And I want to encourage you to get on over to reclamationworship.com. I will link to susiespurgeon.com in the show notes. And uh, also I will be linking to Moody Publishers the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Phil Notes, because Phil Notes is responsible for uh, my friendship with Ray. All right, so until next time, Soli Deo Gloria.